Our God is a God of unlimited light, and he calls us to share that light with others. As we give it away generously, in a paradoxical way, we get brighter. We are blessed by being a blessing, giving time and talents, attention and connection, compassion and kindness, and grace in love. It takes a shift in focus off of ourselves and onto others. It can't be faked or fabricated. It has to be desired. It fills us up, and we can't help but spill Jesus onto those around us. So what would happen if we intentionally pursued a life of living generously? And what would it take to be known for our genuine and extravagant generosity? God has called us to live a life more abundant. And that truly comes when we become generous. Good morning, Cornwall Church. It is good to see you, good to have you here. Those of you in Skagit, so glad uh, that you're with us uh, down there today with Tia leading us in worship there and, and uh, Pastor Michael Leibolt being there uh, hosting today. As well as those of you online at the Trinity Church of God in Boca Raton, we prayed for you guys this morning. I know you're in a time of transition and we continue to lift you up. And uh, those of you with the live stream uh, right now, it is good to have you with us. Uh, one little shout out, let you know that our most uh, senior saint now uh, watches every week, most weeks uh, via live stream because he's not able to make it here. George Potter turned 99 this week, and uh, we celebrate uh, his birthday. Yeah. And, uh, and so, uh, George, we, we celebrate that with you. Another thing about George is uh, many of you are not aware that next month, December, uh, marks the 75th anniversary of the Battle of the Bulge, and George uh, served in the Battle of the Bulge. So, George, thank you for your service. We salute you, and we love you, and God bless you on that. Yeah. This is our, our last week in the Generous series. We've uh, been in this for seven weeks, and today there's some loose ends I want to tie up. So if it feels like I try to launch the sermon three different times before we actually get there, that's by design, because there's a couple more things that I wanted to get in uh, before we got to that. Uh, one of the things that you're aware of if you were here a couple weeks ago is that we gave out um, God's money for you to steward and to practice being generous with. Last week, Pastor Brian had four pages of, of stories. This week, I got an additional five pages of stories, and I just wish you could hear all of these stories. They are so inspiring, and if you haven't told us yet or you're still seeking what God would have you do with that, please let us know about that. I did want to read uh, three uh, quick stories real, real, real quick this morning. Uh, one person just writes, thank you, thank you. We pooled our $10 and added $80 and gifted it to World Vision in support of sexually exploited girls. It will provide housing, counseling, and food. We also bought ducks for those who are poverty-stricken. Ducks multiply quickly and provide a good source of protein in meat and eggs. Now you know. Bucks for ducks. That's a good thing. All right. Uh, here's another one. We pulled our tin and added to make a $100 microloan through Kiva for a woman named Cecilia in Kenya who sells charcoal and firewood to earn a monthly income. When she repays the loan, we can either donate it back to Kiva or relend the money to someone else. Very, very creative way to do that. Here's another one. Thank you, Cornwall Church. Uh, with the money and our matching, we purchased a large print Bible for our wonderful neighbor who's been having trouble reading the small print of the Bible she's had for years. She told us, you don't know what a blessing this is. 
And on and on, just hearing how God has inspired and moved you and the different organizations. I mean, people have given to Interfaith Coalition, Lighthouse Mission, Hope for Justice, Wild Bird Charity, Starfish USA, St. Jude's, Food Banks, Rebound, Samaritan's Purse, Friendship House, Salvation Army, Prison Ministries, Skookum Kids, Guiding Eyes for the Blind, Young Life, Young Lives, Loving Tree, Doors of Hope, and then things, individuals who had medical bills that were mounting, a single mom that needed help with food, Thanksgiving dinner for a family that was struggling. But the thing I think that's been most encouraging and inspiring to me is how often these stories come back saying, we took our $10 and we matched it, or we tripled it, or we 10X'd it. And so that, those thousands of dollars that we gave out are actually probably two or three times over having that kind of impact. And to me, it's just another indicator that we are moving the needle on this whole thing of being the generous people that God has called and created us to be. And generosity, as we've said, is far more than just the monetary. We've looked at being generous with our good deeds, being generous with grace, being generous with encouragement and forgiveness and, and, and hospitality last week with, with Pastor Brian. And the definition for generous that I use from week one is this, a readiness to give more than is strictly necessary or expected. And that can all be summed up in these three words, and then some. What's expected? I'll do that and then some. What's required? I'll do that and then some. What's the minimum? I'll do that and then some. What is normal? I'll do that and then some, that we would go above and beyond just what is normal and just what is expected. Now last weekend, Pastor Brian preached, and most of his sermon I really liked. But Pastor Brian is in pastor timeout this weekend. Skadget, Skadget, you notice he's not there today. He's not fired, he's just in timeout. But one of the things I really loved about his sermon is at the end where he said that we would look less like the world and a whole lot more like Jesus. And isn't that our goal, to be more and more like Jesus Christ? I mean, from the very beginning, we looked at that verse out of Philippians 2, uh, verse 5, where it says, and your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Jesus is the most generous person who ever lived. And Jesus himself said, as we read in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, that it is far more blessed to give than to receive, to follow the attitude of Christ, to look at his example, and to live this life of generosity, to recognize that is the pathway to the blessed life, to a happier life. Now, I did feel like I wanted to throw in one little caveat for some of you, not all of you. Most of us have a long way to go in growing and being generous. I know I do. But I just got hit with a generous fly. Did you see that? Did you see that? Okay, it wasn't just me. All right. Um, oh, it's, oh, yeah, yeah. For some of you, I feel like there's something I do need to mention uh, because there is a, a kind of a dark shadow on this generous thing. While it's true that those who are generous are more happy and healthy and well-adjusted in life, there can be, for some of you, a level of this generosity that becomes unhealthy, and there's a desperate need for some of you, not most, but for some of you, to learn about healthy boundaries. Because sometimes you're so driven by your generosity that it may enable some unhealthy uh, lifestyles for those who you're generous to, and it may be unhealthy for you. And it may be the fact that, that you're giving, and, and, and maybe it's from wrong motives. Maybe it's this guilt that's driving you to be generous. Or maybe it's pride. Or maybe it's a sense of obligation to try to repay something, whatever it might be. And it is possible that this dark side of generosity could lead some of you to an unsustainable lifestyle that leaves you empty and angry and cynical and bitter. And that is not the goal of generosity. I spoke with an individual just recently who's neck deep in a ministry that helps a segment of our society that is in desperate need of help. 
And the phrase that was used was this compassion fatigue, just being drained. Remember, our example is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, while being the most generous person who ever lived, also understood boundaries. Jesus didn't heal every sick person. Jesus didn't feed every hungry person. He didn't raise every dead person. He didn't calm every storm. In fact, there were times that he wouldn't engage with some toxic people, and he recognized that there were times in his life where he needed to pull away from giving so that he could be refilled, times where he would spend alone with the Lord, times where he would spend alone with his disciples, good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, times where he could refill, and he had those boundaries. So while we're all trying to grow, becoming more like Christ and being more generous, some of you need to become more like Christ and having healthy boundaries. And I just felt like I needed to say that before we ended this series because some of you would just drive yourself into the grave and an angry, bitter, old, empty person because I'm being generous. That's not the goal. All right. So we good there? All right. That's one loose end I wanted to talk about. Let's shift gears to something else. As we end this series, I wanted to spend a little bit of time with the, um, the etymology of this word generous. And we maybe should have done this early on, but I think this is a really cool way when you see this, how this ends it for Etymology is the study of the origin of words, the development of words, the evolution of words. So when we look at this word generous, it comes from the, from the root Latin word gen. Gen is the same Latin word we get generations from, uh, genetic, uh, gender, genealogy is all from that root word. And it becomes this Latin word, genus. And genus in zoological terms is a taxonomical rank between family and species. So I, I know I'm giving you, you're going, who, who needs all this? I, I know, I get it, hold on. And from that becomes this Latin word of genero, generosis. And from the old French to the English, it lands at our word generous. That's a little bit of history. For some of you, you go, oh, let's go deeper in that. The rest of you are like, I did that in school, we're done. I'm with you, okay. That's just where the word comes from, this whole idea of this genus, this, this lineage, this genealogy in, in, in our, our, uh, our genetics. But the definition over the years has, has uh, evolved as well. Up until the 16th century and into the 16th century, the word generous talked about a noble birth, of noble birth. That word generous was talking about the elite. Um, the uh, aristocrats, it, it wasn't the normous, normal people. The generous people were people who were born of higher standard. It was this upper echelon of people. That was, they were generous. That was what was seen because of their genetics, because of their birth line. Over the next 100 years into the 17th century, it switched from being this literal figurative family bloodline, the word generous meant um, a, a spirit of nobility. A no, nobility of spirit. So it was more the disposition, it was more the posture, it was more the character traits. And this wasn't about your bloodline, it wasn't about who your parents were, it was about an attitude, uh, about a, a, a way of thinking, about a mindset that would have been formally thinking that was just for the, the upper echelon. And then over the next 100 years, it made another shift to becoming this open-handed, this munificence that we've talked about, generosity as we know it, of being freely, willingly, giving above and beyond. And as I was thinking about these different variations or iterations of this word generous, of noble birth, we had no control over that, but these other two, these other two are what we've been talking about. It's having the mind of Christ. It's having the attitude of Christ, the disposition of Christ, that our attitude then plays out in our actions of how we live that out. 
that the posture that we, we come with, our mindset, then becomes um, our lifestyle. And I thought, well, we'll get two of the three, and anyone can do these, no matter what your, your lineage or your genetics. Anyone can have those two. But then it struck me that, no, as followers of Christ, we actually fall into all three of these. Because in 1 John chapter 3, it says, how great is the love the Father has lavished. Now, that's a generous word, lavished. Lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. That suddenly it struck me. We are of noble birth. What could be more noble than being sons and daughters of the Most High God? And because of God's love for us, he calls us his children. He has created us, and in his love, he says, you are given noble birth. You have a noble bloodline. You are generous in that sense. And the thought of this nobility of spirit, he gives, with, gives to us the Holy Spirit to dwell right within us. And he says, I've given you the nobility of my spirit to dwell within you. And because of that, you have the example of my son, Jesus Christ, who lived the most generous life. And I, I begin to see this. This is us, generous in our birth, our noble birth, in our noble spirit that we have in, in, in the Holy Spirit, and in our noble lifestyle of generosity that we have modeled for us in Jesus. I just thought that was fascinating. So we deal with it. All right, well, no, 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 no applause necessary. That's just to kind of wake people up. I just thought that was so amazing to see the way this, this word has evolved and how that is the exact life that God has created and called us to live in. It was an amazing thought uh, that we would have that kind of life in God. Now, when it says that it's because of God's love that he has lavished on us, we'd recognize that being generous and all the generosity that we've been talking about, all of the different facets of it, all the different aspects of it, generosity is ultimately an expression of love. It's an expression of love. That's the case with our generous God. That very, very famous verse, God so loved the world that he gave. It was out of love. That was an expression of his generosity. He gave his only begotten son. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, and he laid down his life. It was out of love. It was an expression of love that he would lay down his life for his friends. And when we begin to be generous in all these different facets and aspects of generosity, it's an expression of love. But again, for us who've been born into this noble family line, who have this noble spirit within us and this noble lifestyle modeled and exemplified in Christ, it's not just an expression of love. It's a reflection of and a response to. It's not just us digging deep and saying, well, I gotta love and I've gotta be generous. No, 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 it's reflecting a love that we've received. It's a response to a love that we have already received. In 1 John chapter four, it says, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. How has God so loved us? Well, Jeremiah 31 says, God has loved us with an everlasting love. That's pretty amazing. Psalm 103 says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. That's pretty amazing. Romans chapter 8 says, what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Height, death, principalities, life, not even death itself. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Since we are recipients of that kind of love, since God has loved us that way, he says, so we ought to love as a reflection of that love, as a response to that love, and since he loves us that way, we ought to love that way. And because he has loved us that way, we can love that way. 
Now, if you've studied Jesus at all, and I hope that you have, and I hope that you will continue, you know that in Jesus' life, in his teaching, in his example, in everything about him, there was one marker that was predominant over all things, and it was this whole aspect of love and loving generously. Some of you are familiar with, with that time when he was pressed into the corner to say, you know, what is, the, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, all the laws and the prophets hang on these two. And you think about that. They're asking him, which is the greatest commandment? He says, let me just tell you about all of the commandments. There were not just 10 commandments, there were 613 laws, dietary laws and religious laws and you know, civil laws, all these, there were 613 laws. And he says, all of the laws that God has given to us throughout the, 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 the Torah, all of those laws really focus on two different things. One, how is it that we commune with our heavenly father in a proper way? And how is it that we live in community with God's people in a proper way? He says, that's it. You look at every law, and it will either talk to you about communing with God or living in community. And then he talks about the prophets. And as you know, the prophets came. They were, they were uh, God's voice piece uh, on, uh, mouthpiece on his behalf to speak to the people. And they would come with a message all the way through. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Becca, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. All of these prophets had these, these messages, and they were always either get right with God or do right by others. Those were the two messages of the prophets. Get right with God, you've gotten off track. Do right with others. You know, show generosity, pursue justice, have mercy. Those are the things, and he says, everything that the law and the prophets was about are these two relationships. It's to love generously, love your father and love one another. And then Jesus narrows it down even one more in John 13 when he says, a new commandment I give you. Like, wait a second. You think about this. This was very offensive. Who gets to make new commandments? There are already 10. Who gets to say, um, I'm going to add one? You have to have a lot of authority to add commandments to what God has laid down. And Jesus says, okay, I'm going to give you a new commandment. Here it is. I want you to love, another, uh, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Here, here it is, that, that weighty preposition we looked at a couple of weeks ago. In the same measure that Jesus has loved us, to the same degree, in the same way, commensurate with how Jesus has loved us, he said, since I have loved you, as I have loved you, so I want you to love one another. And that's how he lived, and that's what he taught, and that's what he modeled, and his people Got it. They didn't always get it right, but they understood this is the mark. This is what we're striving for. So much so that some of his followers later, you hear this echoed in their writings. There was a disciple that Jesus had that, his name was John, and John refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, which I always thought was kind of funny. Um, he's like, well, that, yeah, Jesus likes them all, but he loves me. And John wrote this in 1 John it says, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, and whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. I'm pretty straightforward there. And he's just echoing what he's heard and seen in Jesus. 
How about Simon Peter that morning on the, on the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection when he says to him, Simon, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Do you love me? Simon would write these words in 1 Peter. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. It just echoes what he heard and what he saw in Jesus. Or the Apostle Paul would write to young Timothy and say, the goal of this command, the goal of this is love. It's not just to be obedient. It, there's something beyond that. It's love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And later to the church in Corinth, a famous verse, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. What you begin to understand and where I'm trying to get us to land in this series is that all of generosity is an expression of love. And for us, it's a reflection of love. And it's a response to love because of this noble family that we've been born into by the love of God and his noble spirit that dwells within us and the noble example in Jesus Christ. No one, no one taught on generous love in a more radical, irrational, extravagant, unimaginable way than Jesus himself. Now I'm getting ready to go into the sermon. <laughs> Told you, it would take three times to get there. And so what I want us to do is look at what I believe is one of the most radical teachings on generous love that has ever been taught. And it's found in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five. And we're gonna look at this. Now, here's, um, here's my biggest fear today. Is that for some of us, raised in church, having read the New Testament, familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, that the familiarity of these words that we're gonna look at, because we've heard them so often, because we know them, that we would somehow become inoculated to how radical, counterintuitive, countercultural, and life transformational these words are. And I'm praying that God would, by His Spirit, allow us to get a glimpse as if we've never heard these before or to see something in how we can live these words out. In the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5 of Matthew, there's this little refrain that Jesus uses about six different times. Again, those of us growing up, reading the New Testament, reading the Sermon on the Mount, we've heard this, so we, we may have lost how impactful it was. We don't understand that when he said this, this was unbelievably offensive to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. It infuriated them, and it may have been kind of confusing to the common folk. This is the repeated refrain he says over and over again. You have heard that it was said, dot, 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 but I tell you. Many of us have heard that. He says it six times in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, thesis, but I tell you, antithesis. That's fine. Get a counterpoint, counterpoint, get another opinion, get a second view of this. Except that these things that you have heard said are the word of God. And to come with an antithesis to the word of God would have been so off-putting, so offensive to those who loved God's word, those who loved the law and the prophets. And this is right on the heels of Jesus saying, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And then he promptly goes into this over and over. You've heard that it says. And when he does that, he quotes Exodus, he quotes Deuteronomy, he quotes the law, and then he gives his own little words to it. To, to try and illustrate how outlandish this would be, if I got up in front of you in all sincerity and honesty with all joking aside, completely serious and said, Cornwall Church, I've been your senior pastor for 26 years. And for 26 years, 
I have said to you, and I, and I pointed out in scripture, how the word of God is a lamp into our feet, that, that the, God's word is our plumb line, it is our foundation. I've said that for 26 years, I've shown you that in scripture, but today I tell you that from this point on, I've got some things to say that will trump the word of God. If that does not cause you to leave this church, you have an issue. That would be a problem. If you came in here and I said, you have heard it said that we serve the Lord our God and the Lord is one. He's made himself known in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But I tell you, there is a fourth person of the Trinity. Pastor Brian, of course. <laughs> like, wait, 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 you can't say that. If I were to come to you and say, you have heard it said that no one knows the day or the hour that Jesus will return. Jesus himself does not know, but I tell you, I've got it figured out. It's like, wait, 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 I know something that Jesus doesn't. You, you see how offensive that would be? So Jesus comes along and he's quoting these words out of the, the law. He says, this is what you've always heard. But I tell you, and they were pushing back like, who are you? I mean, by what authority? Only God could trump the word of God, to which Jesus probably went, figure it out. So that's where we are. In Matthew chapter five, very familiar verses, starting in verse 43, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor. Starts off pretty benign, interesting thing. He's quoting the book that you've never made it through. This is out of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. He's quoting Leviticus and says, you've heard this. You've memorized it. You know this. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor. Now, what he says too is that there is over time, some additional words that have been added onto it that are not scriptural. There's some other things that apparently had become just so common that people said, well, yeah, this is how it goes. It, it's not in the Bible, but maybe it had become so familiar that it sounded like truth and everyone just assumed it was in the Bible. So you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now that's not in the Bible, but they had been saying that. I mean, it's like, we have sayings that people think are in the Bible. Well, you know, the Bible says God helps those who help themselves. Well, okay, show me exactly where that, you know, is said. Well, the Bible says God won't give me more than I can handle. Is that, is that right? Show me where that's, what's found. Well, you know, the, the Bible talks about the age of accountability. Does it? Show me that. Well, you know, my mom's favorite. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Okay. Found in second mom chapter whatever. Yeah, come on. All these things, we just kind of take them as gospel truth, and the Bible doesn't say those things. And so he says, you know, the Bible does say love your, love your neighbor, and you guys have added and hate your enemy, and you, you say it, it's just kind of this, this colloquialism, you're just like, well, of course we say that, and it makes common sense, it's perfect. I mean, their enemy, their big enemy was Rome, and why would you not hate Rome? Rome was ruling them, Rome was oppressing them, Rome was taxing them, Rome enforced a loyalty on them that they didn't really want. Rome was cruel to them. Rome would often kill them and punish them. They, they hated Rome. Of course we hate our, our enemies. But there's also a personal level as well that Jesus would talk about. Not just on the macro level, but in your relationships. So you've heard that it was said. Love your neighbor and, and hate your enemy. And they're like, yeah, 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 wait, it's perfectly good. He says, but I tell you, the antithesis. And I think it's at these, these moments where he says, remember what family you're from. Remember that you were of noble birth, that because of God's 
lavish, generous love for you. He's called you sons and daughters. Remember the noble spirit that is put right within you. Remember the, the generous life that we are called to. But I tell you, he says, love your enemies. Wait a second. You want us to love like Rome? Like the centurions? Like the soldiers that are cruel to us? Like that person that, that messed me up? No, 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 no. We don't love enemies. Enemies are to be overthrown. They're to be conquered. They're to be exploited. They're to be uh, captured. They're, they're to be imprisoned. They're, they're to be destroyed. Just about, no, no, no. I, I tell you, love your enemies. And then he goes one step further. He says, maybe this would be a good first step for you. And, and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, let me remind you the persecution that these followers of Jesus would face. That they would be arrested, they would be imprisoned, they would be flogged, they would be beaten, they would be sawn in two, they'd be torn limb from limb by lions and wild dogs. Nero would wrap them alive with pitch and set them on fire as torches for his garden parties. Their homes and their businesses would be destroyed and you want me to pray for those who do that to me and to my family and to my friends to pray? Now for us, we don't experience that kind of persecution, but the words, pray for those who persecute you, my first response is, oh, I'll pray all right. You better believe I'll pray. I'll pray like a taser on these guys, a praiser. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm gonna pray for them like they've never been prayed for before. It reminds me of that old story that the, the burglar, bur, the, robber, the stealer guy, ro breaks into a house, dark, dark at night with his flashlight, and he's quietly going into this house to rob the house. And as he gets into the living room, he hears this voice from the corner that says, I see you, and so does Jesus. And it startles him, and he says, what? And he hears it again, I see you, and so does Jesus. And he takes his flashlight, and he shines up, and it's a parrot in a cage. And he goes over and says, oh, you see me and so does Jesus. Well, I see you, I don't see Jesus. And then he heard this growl and he looked down and there was a Rottweiler and the parrot said, sick him, Jesus, sick him. <laughs> and sometimes, sometimes we pray that way. I'll pray for you, sick him, Jesus, sick him. Let him have it, I'll back up, you get him, Jesus. That's not what he had in mind here to pray for those who persecute you. You know, I, I love how uh, Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase called The Message, how he writes and rewrites this passage of Scripture. Let me just read this for you. It, it's so beautiful. He said, you're familiar with the old written law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer. For then you are working out your true selves, your God-created selves. And he says, I want you to not do what everybody else does. Because you're of a different family, of noble birth, the noble spirit, and a noble life. To love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you so that that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. This is our family. Who else is a son of our Father in heaven? 
It's about becoming more like our brother, Jesus. That we would become more like him. That we would follow him, and this is how our family operates. You know, when I was growing up, late grade school, early middle school and into high school, there would be times that I would go to my parents and I'd say, hey, can I do whatever it is? And they might say no for whatever reason. To which my uh, line of defense was, well, Doug's parents let him do that. To which my mom always said, we don't do everything the Porterfields do. It wasn't a judgment statement. It wasn't that we were better. It's just we have a different home. We have different values. We have a different lifestyle. We don't do everything they do. And I wonder if when, when these people are saying, yeah, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, Jesus is saying, we don't do everything they do. We're in a different family. And we're becoming more like our brother Jesus. We're, we're becoming more like our father. Because how does God operate with those who are opposed to, to his enemies? And he says, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son, blessings, goodness, generosity, to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God doesn't just discriminate and say, oh, they're following after me. I'll let the sun rise on them. I'll give them a sunny day. I'll help their crops grow. These people, nope, not going to let the sun... God is generous. He blesses both. And the rain, you're saying, so he's mean to both? No, 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 no. Rain was a good thing, especially in that culture, to have water for their plants, water to live. And, and, and God doesn't say, well, I'll give rain just to my people, but not to the unrighteous. He says, do you not see how generous our God is with his love? How his blessings are indiscriminate with the evil and the good, with the righteous and the unrighteous? And then Jesus comes to this kind of this logical conclusion with uh, some rhetorical questions. He says this, if you love those who love you, which is what they'd heard, what reward will you get? Don't answer. Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And I wonder, this is, this is just my speculation. I wonder if when he says, uses the tax collectors, that it's got two different angles he's coming from. One is professionally, vocationally, and one is morally and ethically. Because tax collectors, their vocation is all about a ledger sheet. It's all about contracts, about what do you owe. It's about this is what you owe, so this is what you repay. And he says, now you can approach your relationships like a contractual business deal. You love me, I'll love you back, quid pro quo. You invited me over for dinner, I'll invite you over for dinner. Um, I've done this, now you owe me. He said, you can live your relationships on a contractual basis, like the tax collectors. Is that how you want to live your life? You're welcome to. It's not a very fruitful way to have relationships. They haven't invited me back. They didn't return this favor. They haven't, whatever. And like, fine, you can do that way. And there's also this moral ethical layer. Because the tax collectors were so looked down upon, like when the scripture says that Jesus hung out with the sinners and tax collectors, they were so bad, they had their own category. They don't get to even be put in with the general sinners. And he says, is that really, is that the model? Is that, is that who you're going to follow? Is that the example you want? Listen, we're from a different family. We don't operate in our relationships like contractual agreements. And our goal is not to follow those who are on the lowest rung morally in our society. And then he finishes with this. 
And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? And this, man, if you weren't here for last weekend's sermon, go online, listen to it, watch it. Uh, Brian's sermon on hospitality, if that doesn't rattle your cage, I don't know what will. He says, do not even pagans do that. Okay, here's the reality on this. If all of generosity is an expression of love, it's a reflection of the love we've received. It's a response to reciprocate the love that we've gotten from God. The truth is this, that that kind of love in these kind of situations, they're an act of the heart and the will. It's not just when you feel like it, but it's a decision that I will choose to live as a part of this noble family with the spirit of God within me and his power and the example of Christ that I will choose to love even when I don't feel like it, even when they don't deserve it, even when it's not reciprocated. I wanna follow the example of my Lord in being generous with my love. Let me try to, to narrow this down to one takeaway that applies to every single one of us. Because there's some of you right now that are saying, Bob, this is great teaching, I love what Jesus says. The truth is, I really don't have enemies in my life. I'm not persecuted, and hate is an awfully strong word. I really don't hate people. I mean, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but some of you would say that that's the case. I, I, I can't even identify who would be an enemy. Are you kidding me? I don't, I don't know, I, and I'm not persecuted, not like, not like they were, an, and I don't hate. Okay, good, we'll come back to that. Some of you are here saying, Bob, I get what Jesus is saying, but you have no idea, because I do have an enemy. And what has happened to me, to my family, to my kids, what my business, my reputation, the persecution, I hate that person, and I can't do this. Well, let me address both of those. For those of you in here who don't have enemies, you're not being persecuted, and you don't hate anybody, maybe those words are a little too extreme. So let me bring it down to our world. What if instead of talking about enemies and persecution and hatred, we talk about that person that just really, really bothers you? I mean, really bugs you, frustrates you, gets under your skin, annoys you, you avoid them, you just soon never talk to them. They're not an enemy. You wouldn't call them an enemy. They're not really persecuting you, not by that standard. And you don't hate them. You just really don't want to have anything to do with them. Let's talk about that person. Let me get a little more specific. That boss, that, that coworker, that employee that just drives you nuts. Just go back to your cubicle. Go back to your office. Go out in the field. Get out of here. You just, can't, you just cannot stand to be around them. That person. Don't hate them. They're not your enemy. That neighbor who already has their Christmas lights up. <laughs> or that neighbor who never took them down. How about that staff member that implies you preach too long? I pray for Pastor Brian. You know, we're coming into the holidays family gatherings, that brother-in-law who is so narcissistic, so arrogant, so full of himself, that aunt that is such a gossip in the nosy, busy body into everybody's business, 
that cousin that's just so negative and critical, judgmental, that parent that is so opinionated, that brother that just says inappropriate things, that step member of the family that doesn't understand the culture of your family and just ruins it all. What about that person? They're not an enemy, they don't persecute, you don't hate them, but they just annoy you, bother you. How about that ex? Or how about your children's ex who destroyed their lives? What about that person who politically is so opposite of you? Everything you stand for, they stand against, and everything they stand for, you feel like is just an abomination. What about those people? See, while you say, I don't have enemies, and I'm not persecuted, and I don't hate anybody, I think every single one of us can identify one of those people. And maybe the best step for us is to follow what Jesus said and begin to pray for that person. Because usually we settle for a unilateral disarmament, just a cold war. You stay in your world, I'll stay in mine. But what if we, what if we followed Jesus' example and started praying and praying that God would bless them? Praying that God's grace would surround them. Pray that they would find a, an amazing life in Christ. Praying for them. So I think all of us can do that. And the reality is, it doesn't cost us anything but a little bit of swallowing some pride and dying to self to pray for somebody. And for those of you who say, yeah, Bob, you don't know my circumstance, you don't know the pain, you're right, I don't. A month ago, I was in uh, my hometown. A guy that I went to middle school and part of high school with had looked me up on Facebook, said, next time you're in town, let's get together. I hadn't talked to him in decades. We got together. And as we were getting caught up, he began to tell me some stuff about his dad. I'll spare you the details, but I'm telling you, if I told you what he told me, it would just cause your blood to boil. And his dad is dying, like of Alzheimer's, I believe. And he says, I hate that man, and I can never forgive him for what he did. And he looked across the table at me, and he says, I know. I know it's a cancer that's eating me up, but I hate him. And some of you are in that situation I don't in any way want to diminish your pain. I don't think you should agree with what happened. I don't think you have to align and become best buddies. Here's what I want to say. Our Heavenly Father, out of his lavish love for us, called you into his family. You are of noble birth. You are a son and daughter of the most loving, generous God. And he has put his noble Holy Spirit dwelling right within you where the fruit of the Spirit is love. And he has given you his son, Jesus Christ, who was wronged and persecuted, abused, betrayed, and loved. And Jesus says, a new command I give you Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And maybe Jesus said, would you take a first step and just pray for that person? Just pray. Just pray that God 
would be at work in their life. Maybe that's all you can do at this point. But would you pray? See, every single one of us, no matter where we are, can love generously this way in a first step because love is our noble identity. Jesus said, this is how they will know that you are my disciples. I pray that we continue to become more like Christ, have the attitude of Christ, this noble disposition, and that we would live this way to understand that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And all of these facets that we've looked at, good deeds, the good deeds of Dorcas, the grace that Mephibosheth experienced, the encouragement of Barnabas, the forgiveness of Stephen, the monetary generosity of the Macedonians, the hospitality of those Disney characters, and the love of Jesus, that we would become more like our Lord and Savior because we are sons and daughters of noble birth to love and to be generous.